This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. It was a holiday this past Monday, but that did not keep our Zoomer squad from commenting on the latest developments and issues affecting older Canadians. Among the hot topics, the new federal COVID alert app, which is being criticized for not effectively serving the older demographic which is most at risk of contracting and even dying of the new coronavirus. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss, Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. One person that I, I, I tend to look to for information when it comes to contact tracing um, and just generally speaking, privacy is Anne Kavukian. And I, and I saw her interviewed on this and, and she really liked the app. And she does believe that the app itself is protected, that no personal information is, is collected or retained, that no geolocation data is collected, that apparently all the data is erased after 14 days. Um, what's key about this app is that it, it'll only work if a majority of people adopt it if a majority of people download it and they and they begin to use it and you know experts have put that number at 60% and i guess some people have concerns around um, the use of technology dropping off a senior's age. And I know David can probably speak much better to this because we do know with our own members when we surveyed them, they are adopting technology en masse. But there have been some reports that as people get a little bit older, maybe in their 70s and 80s, that does start to drop off. And so I think that that's the concern. David, my sense of it is that people who use technology will have technology from the last four or five years and people who don't, the people who call in here and say, I'm not on email, I'm not, a, I, I don't, I don't have an iPhone. Those people won't, no matter what the requirement is. Um, do you think I'm right or wrong, David? I think you're partly right. Well, I think you're right, but I think in absolute numbers, um, there is a fall off after age 75 towards age 80. Mm-hmm. Um, below that, you have, I mean, the oldest baby boomer is 75 now, and baby boomers have embraced technology with both hands of all, all of our lives. I say that as a baby boomer, so there's no fall off there. But with apps, it's a little bit different. You're right. They may not have the latest phone. There's also, um, even though they're online on the Internet and certainly on tablets big time, um, equal to or even more than younger generations. They're not as prone to be using apps, and they're very prone toward uh, you know, being very pragmatic. What is, what's in it for them? They're not as in love with technology for its own sake, just because it's neat or kind of interesting. The other problem with this one, and like Marissa, I did get the text message from Rogers about it. I've not yet downloaded it, is you need such a large population of users mm-hmm. before it even works, even if you bypass all the security and let's assume that's all okay. Um, so it doesn't have that immediacy of if I download it, here's what it's going to do for me right now. 
And I think it may be a bit of a slower curve. I do think it'll be a slower curve among seniors who are the very people that are the most vulnerable. Peter, what about you? Have you downloaded it? You know, I have not. I, I actually have an older phone, so I don't, I don't think it would work on my phone. But um, I, I did a story on this on Friday on uh, everythingzoomer.com. What I, what I did was I tracked down a poll um, questioning Canadians on their willingness to download this. And only 29% of Canadians said they were likely or very likely to download so I don't think we're going to get anywhere near the uptake we need for to make a, uh, you know, to make this technology useful. Okay, well, I, I'm I'm with you there. I don't think that we will get anywhere we need. That seems like a big threshold, sixty percent. Yeah. Is it the, does 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 anyone download sixty percent of any app? Well, maybe Google Maps or something like that. But but getting sixty percent penetration into any app, it, it, it seems like a huge leap. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We all know how challenging it is to stay slim, but for those people who are obese, it may be nearly impossible to lose the weight. Doctors who treat obesity and the advocacy group Obesity Canada have teamed up to offer new guidelines for both treating and defining the condition. The focus now is on whether a person's body fat impairs their health rather than on their weight and size. Clinicians also want to get rid of the body mass index as the way to measure obesity, and they want it recognized as a complex condition and not just the result of a lack of willpower. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer gathered a panel of experts to discuss the new obesity guidelines. She was joined by Ian Patton. Director of Advocacy and Public Engagement with Obesity Canada. Jennifer Brown, a registered dietitian with the Ottawa Hospital Bariatric Centre of Excellence and the coordinator for the Canadian Obesity Advocacy Network. And Dr. Arya Sharma, founder and scientific director at Obesity Canada. Uh, affects about 8 or 9 million uh, Canadians who are living with this uh, disease. And the last time we had guidelines, uh, in Canada for the management of obesity was back in 2006. Uh, now, a lot has happened in those last 15 years. Uh, we've had huge advances in our understanding of the biology of obesity. Uh, we have a whole bunch of new treatments, and uh, we've come to recognize that obesity really needs to be managed like a chronic disease in the same way that you would manage diabetes or any other chronic disease. How will this translate uh, now? What, what's the main thing that is going to change as a result of these guidelines? Well, there's a couple of things. The most important one is certainly uh, the concept that obesity, once you have it for whatever reason, is probably going to be with you forever in the sense that you're going to have to uh, find the treatment or find a way of controlling it that you can, you can pretty much do for the rest of your life. Because what we do know about obesity is whenever you stop the treatment, uh, whatever that treatment might be, uh, the weight is going to come back. And that is just normal biology. That's how bodies work. Bodies tend to defend their weight, and if you force them to lose weight, uh, your body is going to fight you and is going to want the weight back. Uh, and so this really becomes a lifelong battle for most people, and that's really what defines obesity as a chronic disease. Uh, now, the second important point that is uh, that is in the guidelines is that we are moving away from uh, you know, just using the scale and the measuring tape to define who has obesity and who doesn't. 
So the new definition that you will find in the guidelines is that you only have obesity when your body fat or your body weight is affecting your health. Uh, if you if your body fat or your body weight is not affecting your health, well, then you just happen to be someone who lives in a large body, and that is not obesity. So this old idea that you could step on the scale or calculate your BMI and look it up on a chart and then you know decide who has obesity or not, uh, that is really a, you know, a concept that we're moving away from. Uh, and a third important concept in this is that the focus of obesity management is really about improving health and well-being, and it's not so much about losing weight. If I can, if I can improve the health and if I can improve the well-being of my patient with obesity without weight loss, then that's great. Uh, sometimes it is going to take weight loss for some of the problems, but uh, the focus is really ultimately on improving health and well-being, and not so much focusing on the numbers on the scale. Jennifer Brown, uh, you're a dietitian. Uh, are the diets for people who are obese are they different than a healthy diet for anyone else? A uh, great question. Thanks, Libby. Um, I think. One of the biggest messages we're trying to uh, come across with the guidelines is that um, healthy eating is, is 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 important for all Canadians, regardless of what someone's weight or body size or health condition is. And um, similar to what Dr. Sharma mentioned about the messaging around focusing on health, we want to do the same when it comes to nutrition. Um, there isn't a special um, diet per se, and, and we like to refer to um, things as just eating patterns. Uh, we all eat, we all enjoy food, and, you know, some people um, are more prone to, uh, unfortunately, gaining weight that can cause impairment to their health. And so we want to make sure that people are, are eating in a way that respects their body, uh, enjoys food, that uh, doesn't demonize uh, food or food choices, and, and really um, something that's individualized to each person. So... Uh, for those folks who might need a little bit more um, of an individualized type of nutrition plan, that's where uh, seeing a registered dietitian who has uh, training and expertise in, in that area, they can help support people uh, that can be customized to them. Ian Patton, uh, you're director of advocacy. So, uh, did did these changes was was that inspired by by people who uh, are obese or um, in terms of changing the medical treatment? Yeah, I think uh, I think one of the key takeaways for individuals living with obesity from from these new guidelines is that we now have a uh, tool that we can use to advocate for ourselves and the care that we need and deserve. Um, for too long now, we've been kind of uh, not given the supports and and, uh, and treatment that you know other chronic conditions are afforded. And um, having these guidelines gives us a tool that we can point to and, and kind of take to the doctors or take to the health professionals and, and start sparking some good discussions about how we should be uh, managed for our chronic disease. Ian Patton, Director of Advocacy and Public Engagement with Obesity Canada, Jennifer Brown, a registered dietitian with the Ottawa Hospital, and Dr. Arya Sharma, Founder and Scientific Director of Obesity Canada. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How are parents and teachers feeling about the plan to send children back to school next month? There seems to be less criticism of the plan for high schools, where no more than 15 students would be in classrooms while wearing masks on school property. In fact, face coverings are mandatory for children from grade 4 to grade 12. But the restrictions are far looser in elementary schools. 
No masks for children from junior kindergarten to grade three and no change to class sizes from the days before the pandemic, which means social distancing won't always be possible. Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel discussed the back-to-school plan. Libby Snymer was joined by John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stins, CEO of Variety Village, as well as Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Yeah, I think it's a very positive step forward. Um, and I say that in the context not just of having kids, but also in the fact that we've been running day camps at Variety Village uh, since the beginning of July. And we've been following a lot of those protocols, and uh, it's been great. It's been great to have the kids be able to be kids again and salvage a little bit of summer. Moving into school, I think, is so critical. It's uh, important for the economy, of course. We know that to get people back to work. But it's really, really critical for these kids to get back into a routine. I think that for sure there's going to be things that have to get worked out and things are going to have to change and shift. But I think the idea of getting kids back to school is an important one. And the steps that they've taken are reasonable. And I think that people can feel confident that uh, going into the school year will be a good experience. Charles, there's been a lot of pushback from unions, particularly about the rules for elementary students, that uh, the class sizes for them have not been reduced, uh, that there seems that the, the unions, not surprisingly, want a lot more hiring to accompany this. What's your feeling about your own kids going back? Well, I have to issue my usual disclaimer that... Oh, right, uh, all the teachers in your family. (laughs) I almost forgot. We teach in multiple school boards um, in various parts of the province, and I've had the opportunity to talk to them. So, you you know, just speaking in terms of the teachers and not to put words in their mouth, I mean, one of my in-laws said very very, um, succinctly that, you know, they're trying to come to peace with what is a vast amount of uncertainty with regards to what classrooms will look like come the fall. I mean, it is a really, really tricky situation from school to school, from classroom to classroom, and from school board to school board. And one of the criticisms that's been been labeled against the government is that they had months to prepare, and essentially their plan boils down to, okay, kids, wear a mask, and that's about it. You know, if there is an outbreak within a given classroom or within a given school, I mean, how does that get reported out? How quickly does it get reported out? And what are the kinds of numbers that would actually legitimately cause health officials um, problems, which would actually give parents pause? And, of course, the, 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 the nightmare scenario is, you know, we have our kids back in school and by November it's like, well, we can't, we just can't do this because the, the cases are, are happening and spiking too quickly. And, um, and, and, you know, in a lot of American cities right now, um, they've just said remote. They're, they're not even messing with the notion of bringing kids back. And we are so fortunate in Canada. Our numbers are incredibly low at the moment. So, you know, we, we have a big, big advantage over our American cousins. But, you know, again, the virus is so unpredictable that we'll just have to see what happens. John, what, what do you think about the plans for the return to school? You know, this is one of those issues that the prime, that the, the premier, forgive me, the premier and, and the minister of education have been grappling with, as, as Charles has said. It is, it is, a, it is a tough call to, to have to deal with this because, you know, the vast majority of parents, you know, in Ontario, as polls have said, and, and just anecdotally want kids to go back to school for for a number of reasons, not only for learnings, but for mental wellness for them, for the kids, 
Uh, and just because last year, school year, was a bit of a tur- turbulent one, let alone uh, what happened with COVID when everything got shut down. So there is a need to have that. But but also, you know, the fact that the, the premier and the minister have always had the authority and, and sort of listened to authorities, health authorities uh, on this. And again, you know, we're at the beginning of August, uh, so we're almost a month away from school. And they will be monitoring quite closely to see what happens over between now and then. Uh, and there will be no doubt that the premier will be quick to sort of shut things down or go online if he feels that things are unsafe. So I think I think parents can rest assured and be safe about that um, that reality. John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stins, CEO of Variety Village, as well as Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel. This is the best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. The federal Liberals recently announced the intention to transition people from the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit to employment insurance. And this is the motivation for a decision by celebrity chef and restaurateur Carl Heinrich to ban tipping at his popular Richmond station eatery. Paying lower wages means employers pay less payroll taxes. And while servers and other staff rely on tips, that part of their income does not usually get reported, at least not in full, at tax time. And this means when a restaurant worker files for unemployment and collects employment insurance, they end up receiving much less than what they qualify for because they've not reported income from tipping. Chef Heinrich says that putting the entirety of an employee's earnings on a paycheck ensures they will get the full 55 percent of their income paid by EI. On Tuesday, Chef Carl Heinrich joined Libby to talk about his decision. We've been looking into getting rid of tipping in our restaurant for about four years now for a lot of reasons. But uh, certainly right now, when looking at a lot of our staff and a lot of you know, frankly, hospitality industry workers across the board who relied on tips for the majority of their income. Um, you know, like you said, you know, when 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 serve ends uh, in a few weeks here, if they can't get a job, what are they going to what are they going to do? But not just that. I mean, what happens if you wanted to take maternity leave or paternity leave, or if you wanted to buy a house, or uh, if if you were sick and you couldn't work? I mean. That's a big reason why you pay into these benefits in the first place, right? According to people I know who have worked in hospitality, they said that on average, people would report a very small percentage of their tips, maybe 10%. Uh, is that your experience? I couldn't say. I mean, I've, I've, never, I've never really received a lot of tips in my career. I mean, I've, I've been a, a chef for a long time, and, and certainly in our restaurant and in, in my career in, in the past, I've received tips as part of a you know a tip sharing system. But for cooks, usually that's a, a more insignificant amount, and so generally, I, I don't know any cook that really reports that amount of money on their on their paycheck. For servers, um, yeah, I mean we we tell all of our staff, or we told all of our staff, anyways. You got to claim these. You got you got to put this. You got to pay taxes on these. You got to pay benefits on these. How much of those? How much for of those earnings are a staff claim? I, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you. Okay. Um, well, let's say that uh, my friend is correct or was correct, and I'm thinking now. So much of these tips are done 
online that it's much harder to hide them. I mean, as you, you used to leave a cash tip, but now you just uh, add it, you know, on the machine. So it would be harder to hide it, I think, anyway. Well, that's that's a great point. Um, and, and frankly, there, there isn't a lot of legislature here from or guidance from from provincial and federal government here on on saying, hey, this is this is how much <laughs> we we know your staff is getting this much in tips, so pony up, right? Technically, legally, if 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 the employer administers tips, if the employer says, here are your tips, then the employer has an obligation to make sure that uh, the benefits are paid into that the employ that the employees paying income tax and CPP um, and EI on those earnings, because they are earnings. You know, we talk about them as tips and as gratuities, but they're, but they're earnings. They're their livelihood, right? And so as an employer, if we administer those earnings, we have to legally tax them, right? Right. Um, and so there's sort of two ways to go about it. Either you administer the tips and you, and you, don't, you don't tax them, uh, or you don't administer the tips and you... And you just sort of leave the cash on the table, which, which you know, going back to your previous point there, not many people pay with cash right now. Um, you know, certainly in our restaurant, I mean, we're right on the edge of financial district. Um, and, uh, you know, we, 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 I would say maybe 5% of our guests pay with cash. Um, so 95% of the income that we're getting, you're right, goes directly into our bank account. And the business pays a merchant service fee on that. And then as the employer, what do we do with those tips? Because technically our income is 20% or so higher than we're, than we're claiming. So, you know, what we've done in the past is we basically just leave that money on the table and said, it's not ours. Go for it, guys. Uh, Chef Carl Heinrich, what would you like to leave us with on this? And I'm just going to make an analogy here. You know, when you, when you board an airplane and you go on a trip somewhere, you don't tip your pilot, you don't tip, tip your stewardess. Um, there are most industries around the world where the employee is not, um, you know, beholden to the customer's generosity to make their, their wages. And the service industry shouldn't really be different there. We treat our employees as professionals. They are professionals. They get compensated like professionals. We want to make sure that they're treated like professionals through and through and making sure that their earnings are insured is a big part of that for us. Celebrity chef and owner of Richmond Station, Carl Heinrich. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Tom in Downsview phoned about tipping and how this affects employment insurance. I used to work in the industry years ago, back in the 80s, and I'll tell you something. If if your staff is not going to get tips, uh, some of the lowest paid ones got to get about seventeen, eighteen an hour. That would translate into around mid thirties over a forty hour period work period. The other thing too is a lot of people in the restaurant industry don't use the EI system uh, because there's so many jobs in the restaurants, and they usually use the restaurants as a stepping stone to something else. Most people that work in it are young, and it's not a career industry unless you're cooking or owning. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is from Donna, who is a caregiver, and talked about the extreme stress she endures. It's frustrating. It's painful. It's, he's abusive. It's just not good at all. It's difficult. I have a 100-kilometer commute daily, and then I go home, and it's the house to look after, the lawn to cut, him to take care of. I had a respite visit on the weekend. I was supposed to have. I thought, great, I can get away. I got to my destination, and they called me and said, we can't fill the visit today. Oh, my God. I got home after the weekend. He hadn't taken any of his medication. You know, it's just, you, you think you've got these people for backup and that you can count on so that you can get a break and can get away from it. Just doesn't happen. Donna, we really appreciate that you called to share your story. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 367 9636. 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.